The Bob Murphy Show, episode 275. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy hey everybody welcome back to the bob murphy show so this is going to be part two in my series on will the AI steal our jobs and or kill us all. And so last episode, episode 274, I made the case that the AI would not make us all unemployable. And I walked through a particular example. I said, oh, imagine if there's a firm that offers snow removal services and it employs a bunch of guys with shovels handheld shovels. And then there's the invention of a snowplow that can be operated by one man and do the work of a hundred in the same time frame. What would that do to the industry? Blah, blah, blah. And I made the point, I said, suppose that to get the job done in an hour or whenever the time frame would be, suppose the guy could spend $2,000 hiring the hundred workers to do it or spend a thousand dollars to rent the services of one driver and the snowplow. And so I said, in that framework, normally what we'd predict would happen would be the invention of the snowplow would, quote, throw all those workers out of a job. They'd have to go do something else because the snowplow took their jobs or rendered human snow shoveling obsolete, at least at a commercial scale, blah, blah, blah. And I made the point that, hey, the reason that's happening is because the workers have better options than to just have their pay get cut in half. Because with the numbers I made up there, if the workers were willing to say, oh, no, we still want to come to work tomorrow with our handheld snow shovel, we agree to get our wages cut in half. Well, then with the numbers I made up there, that would be competitive still. The owner of the firm could say, I could spend $1,000 hiring these 100 workers to do it, or I could spend $1,000 to have the snowplow driven by one man or woman do the job in the same time frame. So why that wouldn't happen, again, is because the workers have something better to do as their next best alternative than to see their pay cut in half, all right? So then I walked through and said, now, if that process happened in job after job after job where new technology, in our case, AI possibly coupled with advanced robotics and whatnot, other kinds of machines that are powered by the AI, the end result wouldn't be that everybody was earning nothing and nobody could do anything that was worth hiring for, it would actually be the other way around. Everybody could still find work at any given time, even though the AI coupled with physical hardware, or hardware <laughs> for short, I'm being redundant there, can do anything that humans can do times a million and can do things that the humans can't even do at all. That doesn't mean they're infinitely productive. The AI, machine, combos, systems, that at any given time, there's only a finite amount of tasks they can be completing. And there will still be things for the humans to do. And in that scenario, it's not the case that the humans would be getting crumbs. They would be getting mansions on Venus. All right, so that was kind of the argument I used. So it's still correct in relative terms that 
if you want to think of it this way, the share of GDP that accrues to human labor might go down drastically as a percentage. But that is consistent with the absolute flow of goods and services, the level of the flow each year accruing to human labor is much higher than currently is the case. Those two statements are compatible. Those could both be true at the same time. And you say, well, how? Because GDP in this scenario is going to be ludicrously higher than it is right now. Real GDP as well, which is more of the relevant thing. And so it can, again, simultaneously be true that human labor per se gets a very tiny sliver of GDP, and yet that the absolute amount of what they do get allows for living standards that today would seem fanciful to us, like sci-fi. Okay? So that's the way it would play. And I, I use that particular argument. Again, you can go listen to the episode. I came up with a different way to reach the same conclusion. So again, what I'm trying to show is even if it's true that at some point in the not-too-distant future, there is literally no job that a human being can perform better than something artificial can do, even so, that doesn't mean humans aren't going to be able to find jobs anymore. And it's also the case, not only will they be able to find jobs, but their real wages will be much higher than is currently the case. So that's what I'm trying to prove. So I use one method of argument to try to reach that conclusion in the previous episode, and now I thought of a different way to do it, to reach the same conclusion. All right, so let's just do a quick refresher. course. And also, by the way, folks, with this stuff, I'm taking the time to teach you general economic principles right, that I could probably land the punch faster, but I want to enjoy the scenery, as it were, all right, that the point here isn't merely to get across a certain perspective on AI, but rather to teach you how to think like an economist, all right, so that's why I'm going to take a moment and explain the general principle here about marginal productivity before diving into the application to this particular issue. So there's a general principle in economics that factors of production in a competitive market, at least, tend to be paid what's called their marginal product, all right? And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it right now. I just want to make sure you understand the general idea. So that if a worker, you know, a particular firm hires a worker, and if because now that worker isn't integrated into their production process, the firm's revenues, all told, are $20 higher for every hour that the worker works than they otherwise would be if the worker weren't employed, then that means the firm can spend up to $20 an hour to acquire that worker's services and doing so makes the firm more profitable, right? So if the firm pays the worker $15 an hour, then the firm implicitly is making $5 an hour extra income or profit if you want to use that term for every hour now that they hired that worker. So that's why they'd want to do it if what the firm is interested in is maximizing profits. All right. Instead, let me just do a quick little tangent, give a little extra kick to those of you who are already well-versed in economics. I went through this demonstration. I was on a training work call. So the logic, just to finish that train of thought, is the reason in a competitive market, at least, workers tend to get paid their marginal product is because firms would keep bidding away the worker until the point at which the worker was being paid the $20 for the example I was using, right? So if a firm originally was paying the worker $15 an hour, when really the worker's bringing 20 to the table, then that firm's, in a sense, gaining $5 an hour 
But then some other firm would see that situation and tell the worker, hey, we'll pay you $16 an hour. Come work for us. But then another firm would say, no, we'll pay you $17. Right? And the only logical stopping point to that process is if the worker's getting paid $20. If he's getting paid less than $20, then there's an incentive for some other firm to bid him away. Now, in the real world, obviously, it's not just an objectively obvious fact how much per hour does a worker bring? And even that question doesn't make, you know, you could talk about, well, I mean, there's a training period. They got to learn how the ropes work of the firm and blah, blah, blah. And they gain skills and yeah, all that stuff. And maybe certain days of the week, the worker's more productive and other, yeah, all that. But just as a baseline to start warming us up to how to think about labor markets and how they get paid, people get paid. That's a decent approximation. So anyway, somebody challenged me and said, well, why would somebody, why would they hire him at 20? I wouldn't be worth their effort or everything. And so actually, I think this underscores the problem with standard economics models is they don't include time. What would sound more plausible is that you're like a capitalist, you happen to own a firm, and then you have some financial capital that you're deciding what to do with. And one thing you could do is go buy bonds with it. You could go invest it in real estate. You could buy portfolio stocks, buy a stock index or something. You could take out a whole life insurance policy. You could buy a sound token from Infinio, right? All these things you could do. Or you could use the money to pay wages to hire a worker to get incorporated into your business enterprise. And then if you say, oh, if I pay whatever, $100 to this worker today, the labor that he or she puts into the enterprise, all told, next year will bring in $110 of extra revenue than would otherwise be the case. And so you could do it that way and see, oh, so I'm kind of getting like a 10% rate of return if I invest $100 in hiring this worker. Whereas if I put it in the stock market, I might make blah, blah, blah. And you know, see, if you you think of it like that, then it really does make sense that the worker would get paid adjusting for risk, right? That if what the worker's doing is a riskier project than just putting it in a bond issued by General Electric or something, then you can see how, oh, I can earn... 6% 6% over here, I would be willing to hire a worker. You know, I would pay up to the point at which, like in other words, the more you pay the worker, given your projections about what that person's physical output will be and how much you can sell it for down the road, the higher the wage you have to pay, the lower the rate of return on that project, right? And so you could see the more you pay now, the rate of return goes down. And so in the extreme, you know, I have $100 I'm going to do something with, possibly just keep it in my cash balances. And so if I can earn... on this really safe bond, the most I would pay the worker in wages is such that would yield whatever, 6.5%. And so you could see how there, it's not that you'd stop the analysis and say, but gee, at that point, why would they hire the worker to do anything? Like it's a wash. No, because like by assumption, the person's got to do something with the money. And the question is just, what are you going to do with it? Are you going to put it in a bond? You're going to do put it in the stock market? Are you going to use it to hire more workers? Whereas like normally the way economists teach this concept, it's like the wages come out of nowhere, right? Like, oh, you're doing something and then would you like to take some money that we don't know where you got it from to pay a worker to do something that instantaneously yields a product that you then sell and you make you pocket the difference. And there's some problems with that line of thinking. And I'm saying partly it's because it takes time out of the analysis. It's like it's an instantaneous thing. You pay the $20 to the worker, he boosts output, you sell the extra product for an extra $25 in revenue and in the limit, you'd be willing to pay 25 for that. And you'd say, well, why would you bother doing it? It's a wash. So again, all right, I'm repeating myself. Anyway, so we'll, I'll come back from that cul-de-sac after we've taken that nice 
detour down economic theory lane. Okay, so long and short of it is, you might say, no, the Bob, that was definitely the long of it, is that the worker tends to get paid marginal product. Now, for the purposes of what we're going to do here, let's make it in real terms, right? Let's not think of it in terms of money. I think my analysis will, you'll see what I'm doing with this thought experiment, the relevance to AI, better if I couch it in real terms. So one last caveat. Notice that what I just said did not have a caveat in the beginning and a condition, a precondition saying, let's assume there aren't AI-powered robots, right? The principle that I enunciated to say that in a competitive market, workers tend to get paid their marginal product, I invoked just some very basic assumptions there, namely that there's more than one firm or potential employer and the employers want to make more profit or have a higher return on their invested capital in the form of paying wages. Okay, so that is still going to be true. That's the central insight when AI-powered machines come on the scene. Workers are still going to get paid their marginal product. And so now we just have to figure out, okay, by adding more intelligent AI systems with ever more durable and dexterous, that's a good word, dexterous, meaning they have more dexterity, machinery, what does that do to the marginal productivity of human beings? And I want to say it obviously increases them, right? In terms of how much stuff can humans produce per hour, that is clearly going to be higher as AI systems get better and the hardware that goes along with them gets more sophisticated. At the very least, humans can keep doing whatever the heck they were doing before. It's sort of like this. Go back to the snow shovel example. The fact that snow plows have been invented doesn't mean the humans with their snow shovels and their bare hands now can move fewer pounds of snow per hour. No, that technology, that method of snow removal is still just as productive in physical terms as it was before. Okay? So that's the central insight here. So, and I want to say, at worst, the humans would be no worse off But beyond that, as more and more AI get developed and so on, like it's only going to make the humans more productive in absolute physical terms. And hence, since, again, the argument for why factors of production get paid their marginal product doesn't depend on there not being AI involved, there was a more standard argument for that, that's still going to be true. And hence, workers are still going to get paid if they want to, what they were before in terms of the flow of goods and services that they were able to contribute or produce on the margin from their contribution. And hence, because actually, like I say, the AI will only make the humans more productive. And let me just, you might say, well, why? I, I don't, why should that be the case? But Because, again, it can't make them less productive because they can just keep doing what they were doing before without the cooperation of the AI. So now, if these super intelligent highly physically productive and durable and strong and blah, 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 systems get thrown into the mix that can only help. Just like if you had a bunch of workers building a house and some strong man walks onto the scene and he gets thrown, that can only make the other workers more productive physically. That now there's certain things that the strong man can do and they can help and they can, you know, it opens up new possibilities. Because again, the very worst that can happen is the strong man has nothing to offer and they tell him just to go sit in a corner and they just keep building the house the way they were before. So his 
presence and the ability of him to cooperate and be integrated into the operation can only help. To make it more clear, just like why do tools make workers more productive, right? If you had a bunch of workers removing snow with their bare hands and then someone showed up with shovels and started handing them out, even though the owners of the shovels were renting them and got the marginal product, marginal product, I was going to say productivity. I didn't like become British or something for a second. The marginal product of what the shovels add to the system, still a worker now on the margin can shovel more snow if he's using a shovel. And so his marginal product has gone up. All right, so it's a tricky kind of thing in an economics to have. There's ways you can like use calculus and stuff to kind of tease this out because it, it sounds like I'm contradicting myself or it sounds like you're double counting or something. But no, it all is internally consistent and it makes sense. It's going to be tricky for me to do it verbally right now, but let me just, in case you're worried about that, that I'm somehow, well, wait a minute. If adding shovels to the mix, we understand how that increases the amount of snow removed per hour, but which is it? Is the owners of the shovel getting paid for that contribution or are the workers getting paid more now because they're more, it's both. It can simultaneously be true that the owners of the shovel get paid the marginal product and the workers earn more because they're more productive now using shovels. Okay, so that's not a contradiction. Sort of like, again, that fallacy that Krugman was involved in when he was saying, well, gee, I mean, how can right-wingers simultaneously say that these really talented CEOs like Steve Jobs or whatever, Bill Gates, create all these jobs and add value to the economy and people get paid their marginal product, which is it? Like, you know, if Steve Jobs created a trillion dollars in value, but then he got paid a trillion dollars, it's a wash to everybody else. No, that's a fallacy on Krugman's part. It can simultaneously be true that Michael Jordan gets paid his marginal product and he makes the rest of us richer. That's possible. Okay, so you probably follow me now and you're like, oh, okay, Bob, but you might have a nagging doubt. And I say, yeah, Bob, I get what you're saying, how clearly once the AI come on the scene and you know, let's say they get super, super, super intelligent 50 years from now, they're building their self-piloted vessels that go to Alpha Centauri and... They've got a Dyson sphere around it and everything, and they're doing all kinds of crazy stuff. They got nanobots that have completely reformed Venus into a giant sculpture of Elon Musk's head or something. You know, who knows? In that kind of world, still, praxeology rules, baby, with a Z. And the humans who are alive at that point still get paid their marginal product, and the ability to cooperate with those AI systems can only make the human laborer more physically productive. By the way, the reason I keep saying physically is there's a possible complication when you're turned in monetary value terms. And that's where we're heading here in a second just to close that loophole. But that's why I keep saying physical just so you're like, we're just picturing, yeah, the amount of physical things you can make. And it could be a flow of intangible services too, but I'm, I'm saying the actual stuff being produced, not the market value of it, because that's an extra step that is not so obvious. But clearly... If a, you know, an average human worker can make more stuff per hour in the year 2075, being surrounded by this whole infrastructure of a network of crazy intelligent AI systems, then the human can still be paid that per hour. And that's what the human will be paid, right? Because the laws of economics are still going to be true in that world. So you, you might say, okay, I got you, Bob, but hang on a second. Aren't you proving too much? Because we know from experience, from history, when it's more piecemeal, when it's not as exaggerated, there really are 
quote, labor-saving devices that are invented and introduced into certain industries that really do throw some people out of work. And typically, the way economists handle that is to say, well, yeah, it hurts those workers, but it helps everybody else. And so in the long run, everybody benefits as those innovations are made in different areas that you gain more as a consumer from the cumulative effect of all the little savings in each of the industries where you spend your money on versus where you took a hit in the industry where you make your money, earn your money, right? That's normally how we as economists talk. That's how I talked last episode. So you might be saying, Bob, this new argument you're giving us, it proves too much. It's too cute because like you just said, the guy shoveling snow, it's not like their shovels all broke or have holes in them or that their forearms now aren't as strong as they were last week before the snowplow was invented. And you even admitted, Bob, that the workers get thrown out of work by the invention of the snowplow. So if your new argument is valid, then you know wouldn't we have to say those workers can still find some employer who's not using the snowplow and they still get paid in real term? Okay, so yes, that's what I want to tackle right now to reconcile all that. So I'm going to switch examples because it's hard to picture it in terms of snow removal services because there, if you were going to be paid in kind, doesn't really make sense. So what I'll do instead is talk about, like, let's say what the workers are doing is harvesting coconuts. All right, so we're on some tropical island and there's a bunch of workers who originally were, they're just using their bare hands. And what they do is every hour, a worker can climb up the tree and get 10 coconuts per hour. And so in the limit with competition, each worker gets paid 10 coconuts per hour. All right. There's some other things. <laughs> it's funny, even like it's funny to go through these things and then try to imagine stuff like, what if you weren't an economist and you're hearing this the first time? And I agree, it does sound goofy because it's like, why would a firm hire a bunch of people to do that if you had to pay them all in wages what they're doing? Like, there's nothing left for the firm owner, right? And again, part of it has to do with the time element that if what you're doing is getting paid up front for a product and won't be sold down the road, you know, till down the road, that's part of the explanation that what the firm is doing the capitalists who are funding it are actually sort of giving an advance on the future product. Okay, so another reason, incidentally, that a firm might still want to hire multiple workers, even though each worker is getting paid their marginal product, has to do with the distinction between the infra-marginal units and the marginal unit. So the punchline is the average productivity of a worker could be higher than the marginal productivity. So the idea is like, oh, what if the first, you've got this company that has a bunch of workers and they just go around in swarms and gather coconuts in an area and maybe the first worker who's involved gathers 20 coconuts an hour. You add another worker and output goes up and maybe now it's only, like total output's only 19 coconuts per hour. And then you add a third worker and the three of them together can get what, 27 coconuts per hour, right? So the marginal product keeps going down by one coconut per hour until maybe you add that 10th worker or whoever. The next worker only at some point adds the total output from the previous total number of workers to the new total. When you add one more, total output goes up by 10. So now it's the case that for any given worker, if that person doesn't show up, then total output drops by 10 coconuts. So the marginal product of each of the workers is 10 coconuts, even though in the beginning, when you went from zero to one to two to three workers, 
output was jumping by more than 10 for each of those additions, each of those increments. Okay, so in that kind of a situation, a company that specializes in coconut harvesting and hires a crew, the owner of that firm ends up with stuff left over. And by the way, it's not, it wouldn't be pure exploitation and blah, 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 because there'd be competition involved. Anyway, so that's the idea. Okay. But forget the firm because, again, it makes it tricky and we, I keep certain things make more sense when you do it in money terms. So let's just forget, you know, have it be sole proprietors. Okay. So it's just this huge tropical island. There's coconut trees all over the place and nobody owns them. That's another thing, right? Imagine it's unowned because they're so bountiful, but it does take labor effort to extract the coconuts, right? They're not just like falling out of the sky. And suppose that the individuals on the island are pretty comparable skills. So the workers, anybody who wants to can go spend an hour and get 10 coconuts that way. All right. Also, they can go wade out into the ocean and grab fish and imagine they can get 10 fish per hour. That way they have nets or something, or they go into a certain area where they know there's plentiful fish. They can grab them that way. And there's other stuff too. They can go collect rocks that are suitable for building shelter or serve, you know, whatever. There's all kinds of things they can do. And originally, one coconut trades for one fish. Okay, so a worker who goes out, spends his time every hour getting 10 coconuts, he doesn't just have to eat 10 coconuts. He can go and trade five of them to get five fish. And he trades two of the coconuts to get two bundles of the cool rocks, whatever they use them for. So he eats three coconuts maybe and, quote, spends the other seven buying, you know, a combination of fish and other things he might like based on what the other people are producing, okay? Now there's an innovation. Somebody realizes, whoa, if I go and grab a stick that's of a certain length and durability, I can go around and knock the coconuts out of the trees without having to climb the tree, and I end up being able to harvest 50 coconuts per hour. And so I want to say, what is that going to do now? So by assumption there's still plentiful trees so that anybody who wants to with his bare hands can go grab coconuts that way. And so if you wanted to, you could still just go do that and always eat 10 coconuts per hour. So the fact that now there's somebody who has this new technology and can harvest 50 coconuts per hour, that doesn't hurt you in your ability to go generate 10 coconuts per hour of income, of quote, real income. You can have a quote, real consumption of 10 coconuts per hour, both before and after this new technology of using the stick is discovered. But there's still a disruption and that technology is going to affect the workers who originally were specializing in coconut harvesting. And the reason is now, because there's going to be so many more coconuts harvested relative to how much fish and stones and blah, blah, blah is harvested or produced, whatever the verb would be, depending on the item, the market value of coconuts relative to those other goods is going to go way down. Or to say it differently, coconuts are going to become much cheaper in this little island economy than they were before the invention of the, or the discovery of the stick technology. And so that's, so you see how I'm reconciling everything? So it's still true in this goofy thought experiment that the worker gets paid his marginal product, even if he continues to operate without the technology. If a worker with his bare hands can still grab 10 coconuts per hour, he can still eat 10 coconuts per hour. But that's not as useful to him as it was before the invention 
because before the invention, 10 coconuts had a certain purchasing power an exchange value in the community so that you could take your 10 coconuts and transform it through trade into what I say, like three coconuts and two rocks and five fish, something like that. I remember if I said two or three coconuts, but you get the idea. So now maybe in the new equilibrium after the stick technology is developed, maybe you need 10 coconuts to trade for one fish instead of one to one. And so maybe now the worker went from being able every hour to have two coconuts, three rocks and five fish. Maybe now all he can have is either 10 coconuts or one fish and zero rocks or maybe two coconuts and a rock or something, you know. You get the idea. So in that sense, his standard of living has plummeted because most people wanted to do more than simply eat nothing but coconuts. Okay. And so then what would happen in that scenario is fewer workers would stay in coconut production. They would go into catching fish or grabbing the suitable rocks for whatever purposes they use them for. And now the fewer workers remaining in the coconut field, because they're all going to be using sticks, are all going to be correct. So notice those workers, they're going to get 50 coconuts per hour, right? If you know how to use a stick properly and you know how to locate the appropriate kind of stick, you can now go earn 50 coconuts per hour. Because again, assume like it's not that somebody owns the trees where you get the sticks from. Like, you imagine that's like a free gift of nature. So clearly in the new equilibrium, what's going to happen is anybody in coconut production is going to be using a stick because that makes you five times more productive. You'd be foolish to stay in coconut production using your bare hands. You'd be better off you'd be able to generate more in market value by going and grabbing fish or something. In the unrealistic scenario where all the workers were identical and completely interchangeable in terms of their skills, everybody would be better off. Yes, the workers who originally had been deployed in coconut harvesting would now switch over to fish production, but they would be just as physically productive as the people in fish production. And so you know if clearly the people involved in fish production can only benefit when the coconut people figure out how to vastly increase their productivity then since everybody's interchangeable, then that means the workers who originally were in coconut production and now go into fish production must be better off too because they're all interchangeable. They got to have the same standard of living in the new scenario. Okay, so that's clear. Now, in a more realistic scenario where you're probably saying, well, Bob, this is a pretty unrealistic scenario to begin with. So the fact that you're making a quote more realistic isn't much of an improvement, but still work with me here, folks. If we make it a little bit more realistic and say that imagine originally the workers weren't all equally skilled in every area and some were very good at climbing trees and picking coconuts, whereas other ones were really good at knowing where to stand in the ocean to grab the fish. Or, you know, if we want to give them tools too, like maybe they, someone who's really good at building a net and that's why they can harvest more fish per hour than the average person. If that's what initially helped determine which lines or which occupations the islanders all went into, well, now, yeah, the people who originally were really good at climbing trees and picking coconuts, again, they could still do that if they chose to. It's just what they would be able to trade those coconuts for would plummet in the new equilibrium. So they might still find it better to switch to catching fish, but if they can only catch 70% as many fish per hour as the people who originally were in that line of work, then their standard of living might still go down because of the discovery of the coconut stick technology. Okay, so I hope that scenario has helped you think through the logic of it. And so you get my point that it is always the case that tendency to get paid your marginal product is there. And if you're thinking of it in real terms, that 
doesn't hurt you. The fact that now there's a better way to create stuff or a more, more physically productive way to make things. What happens though is when you are quote thrown out of work by a quote labor saving innovation, strictly speaking, the reason is because output in that sector goes up so much that the exchange value per unit of the goods or services in that area drops relative to the other sectors. All right, so notice total output is still higher, clearly. So per capita output is higher and per capita income is higher, clearly. But there still could be that distributional impact, even though, again, everybody is still being paid their marginal product in real terms. Okay, so now that I've just helped you really think through the logic of that, that's what I'm saying. As these new AI-powered systems come online and start getting integrated in the global economy, humans, that's not going to make them less physically productive. If anything, it's only going to boost it. So we know in the new equilibrium, the human beings are going to be able to enjoy a much higher standard of living. Because again, we don't need to worry. It's not like it's all just going into one sector by assumption, but the fear is, no, what if in every occupation output goes up a hundredfold? Okay, that's awesome. So that means the relative prices of the goods are still going to be roughly the same. You know, if the AI stuff means car production goes up 10,000%, whereas novel production goes up a billion percent, then maybe the relative price of novels falls compared to the price of cars. You still could have issues like that, but still, that would just mean at worst, some workers would have to switch. In other words, in the new equilibrium, it's not that every human being would still keep doing the same thing. No, they wouldn't. People would go into where their comparative advantage is. And that might change with the new numbers because the AIs are not going to augment output proportionally in every sector. Again, in the knowledge fields, in terms of like discovery of mathematical theorems, that's going to go way up more than like how much copper can be harvested per year or something until we get to the point where the AI can just like rearrange quarks or something, there might be some physical limitations in that regard. Whereas something that's more just immaterial, again, like novel production or how many new songs are produced or how many blockbuster films are produced. Because, you know, <laughs> if the AI, it's not like you say, oh yeah, because they could do all kinds of special effects with the human actor. No, they wouldn't need anything physical at all. It could all be AI generated like cgi and stuff but of such quality that to us to our naked eye we couldn't tell the difference and you know they could do cool stuff like let's take orson wells and his prime and put him in a movie with jackie gleason and whatever groucho marx and genghis khan for all, <laughs> for all we know you could do all that kind of stuff and there could be a trillion different permutations of the various things so those types of things yeah the output and those sectors will be so much higher, like it, you might even be in a sense incalculable, whereas the more physical things, output would be a lot higher, but not compared to the increase in those. So the relative prices of certain things might change a lot too. And so, yeah, maybe the people who originally were involved in writing novels or writing movie scripts or operating a camera on a movie set, yeah, maybe they're not going to keep doing that. And it's just that, they might have to go do something else. But still, again, there's always going to be jobs available for the humans because, again, their productivity is not going down in physical terms. Okay, so I hope I've beaten that to death so you see it. 
Hey folks, let's take a pause in the action for me to remind you, if you like what you're hearing, then I encourage you, if you haven't already done so, to set up a either a one-shot or a recurring support payment at bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute. There's some incentives there for good as you can get based on your support level. But in general, if you like what you're hearing, by all means, give back to the community. And I do want to mention, whether you do it or not, I'm not setting up a transaction. I'm just telling you I'm going to do this. I'm going to resume now doing two episodes in a typical week, one being my solo commentary and the other being an interview. All right, so I'm going to get back on track booking interviews now that things are a bit more stable on my end. So again, thank you for all who have contributed already, but if you're considering it, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute. Thanks. Let me now try a different way of reaching the same conclusion. Give you a threefer. But again, folks, partly I'm doing this just to kind of teach basic economics. So let's talk a little bit about comparative advantage. So I mentioned that phrase a minute ago, in case you don't know what that means. So in economics, originally, there were the mercantilists. And they argued that the way a nation becomes wealthier is that it acquires gold and silver, right? It wants to run a, quote, positive trade balance. It wants to sell more stuff to the rest of the world than its people import from the rest of the world. It wants to have exports greater than imports. And then if you get paid in gold and silver, you just add to your stockpiles, okay? By the way, I think correctly construed, that's actually not as wrong as a lot of modern free market economists make it out to be. Because especially if we're talking about gold and silver, like if an individual household, that's fine to want to accumulate savings in the form of precious metals. Like there's nothing crazy about that. So anyway, I just want to mention, I think some of the modern free marketeer critiques of mercantilism are a little bit off that there's a certain correctly postulated mercantilism actually isn't nutty. But anyway, just giving you broad brushstrokes here, Adam Smith comes along with his book on the wealth of nations, 1776 release date, and shows that, oh no, just like it actually would make sense for even a household to not try to do everything, quote, in-house, but to specialize in certain things and then trade that away to gain stuff that others make, right? You don't expect the individual household to be self-sufficient or even the individual farm or whatever. They're integrated in the economy. Likewise, a great nation shouldn't just try to produce everything internally, domestically. If there's certain things that France can do better than England can do, then England should specialize in what it's good at and France specializes what they're good at and then they trade. And then the English and the French are both made richer. Okay. Now, if you looked at Smith's actual arguments and his examples, he was actually relying on a notion of absolute advantage. I don't remember the examples off the top of my head, but like the French might specialize in wine production and the English might specialize in wool production. And the way Smith chose the numbers, it was that an hour of labor in France would make more bottles of wine than an hour of labor in England would. And an hour of labor in England would make more wool than an hour of labor in France would. And so then it seems obvious, like, oh yeah, clearly the English worker should focus on wool production and the French worker should focus on wine production, make more of those things than they need themselves and then trade a surplus. 
that's pretty straightforward. That makes sense. So you see the problem, you know, how that's a blow to mercantilism. The idea is we don't want to just accumulate gold and silver coins. That's not going to make our nation wealthy. What we want is to have a high standard of living. And so it's okay even if we have a balanced trade, right, where like the market value of the wool that we sell to France is equal to the market value of the wine they sell to us. You know, if I'm assuming the perspective of the English for the moment, that's fine. That doesn't mean like we're not gaining from international trade and oh, gee, we really try to, we've got to try to reduce our exports. Otherwise, this is pointless. It's a wash, right? If you're just thinking in money terms, in terms of flows of gold or silver, then yeah, that doesn't seem like it's doing anything for you. But obviously it's making your citizens have a higher standard of living. The same for the French. Okay. So that's where Smith was coming from. And it was, you know, great stuff. Okay. But still that might leave open the possibility that what if there were a nation whose workers were superior in every line so that an hour of the workers time in this particular nation could produce more in any industry than would be the case for the workers who lived in other countries. And then in that case, you might suppose there really would be no gains from trade, at least from the perspective of the super productive country. How could they benefit by merging their economy, if you will, with weaker economies? Like, wouldn't that, you could see how that would benefit the weaker economies, but wouldn't that kind of pull down the average? And I'm using this terminology because I, Pat Buchanan one time said something like that. Like he was, I think Michael Kinsley asked him on the show Crossfire back when they were debating NAFTA. And he said, okay, I, I get how you don't like manage trade deals and stuff like that, Pat. And it's thousands of pages of documents and international regulations and environmental impact and blah, 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 blah. And you don't like the UN and the IMF. I get all that. But just pure free trade. If we could just get rid of all the tariffs that the US has on Mexico right now, would you want to do that? And he said, no, because it would merge the US economy with the Mexican economy and you know, it would bring down our standard of living or something like that. I may be getting some of the details wrong. Maybe it wasn't crossfire or whatever, but that definitely happened. And so I want to say, no, that, that's wrong. So yeah, you could be a good libertarian understander of free market economics that opposed NAFTA. Murray Rothbard did, but that was because he had objections you know, to the political nature of it and the supranational bodies and stuff that it gave power to. All right. So in terms of the history of economic thought, there's this principle called comparative advantage. And what it says is that even if you had, I mean, this isn't the definition of the term, but this is an implication of the concept and how it's used. Even if there is a nation where the workers in it are so productive that no matter what good or service we're talking about, an hour of their time is more physically productive in that area than is the case for workers in other countries. Still, the people in the rich country, the productive country, benefit from the option of specializing in their comparative advantage and trading with the people who are less productive. A way of phrasing it is to say, even if one nation has the absolute advantage in every line, there is still a comparative advantage it has in only some of the lines, and that's where it should focus its resources. Its workers should concentrate where they have not just the absolute advantage, which happens to be everything, but the comparative advantage, which is not every line. So a different way of saying it is that even if a country has an absolute advantage in everything, it still is only going to have a comparative advantage in some of the things. And that's where it should focus its efforts. Okay, so let me, I love using numerical examples. And so let me just give you one. I encourage you, if you're able to, you know, pull your phone out or pull out a piece of scrap paper or whatever, or ask your 
super intelligent AI vacuum cleaner or something to show it on the display. Just jot these things down because this will make more sense. And then you might say, okay, yeah, we get the idea, Bob. But again, I didn't really fully get it. It didn't seep down into my core until I worked with a numerical example. So let me just give you that and see if it works for you too. So we're going to be looking at a hypothetical example of the U.S. and Mexico. And the unit of labor that we're talking about is 10 worker years. Okay, so it's an amount of labor, effort, certain workers devoted to a certain thing for the course of a year in 10 of those. So that's like the unit of input. I just picked that, and you'll see, to make the numbers nicer on the output side and plausible. And so there's two different products that we're talking about. Jets, you know, like jet airplanes, and cars. And so suppose in the U.S., if you devote a unit of labor, and again, the unit being 10 worker years, you can get either two jets or 10 cars. So that's the input-output possibilities in the U.S. That 10 worker years can give you either output of two jets at the end of the process or 10 cars. In Mexico, in contrast, if you input 10 worker years of Mexican labor, suppose you get either one jet airplane or eight cars. Okay, so if you ask, where does the U.S. have an absolute advantage? It's in both. It can, you know, with the same amount of worker years put into it, it either gets two jets versus the Mexican one jet, so two is bigger than one, or it gets 10 cars versus the Mexican eight cars. 10 is bigger than eight. So in terms of Adam Smith's arguments, you might be tempted to say, I don't see how the U.S. possibly benefits from dealing with Mexico here because the U.S. workers can make more jets and more cars per hour or you know, per year than the Mexican counterpart. So I don't see how this works, but there still are gains from trade. So to show that, the possibility of that, but let me first just explain what's going on and then I'll give you another, you know, I'll flesh out the numerical example to show you hands down how total output, the, like, the Americans and the Mexicans can both have more stuff if they specialize in their comparative advantage and trade the surplus. Okay, so the intuition here is to say that you're measuring costs wrong if you're thinking of it in terms of labor hours. That you might be thinking, oh, in the U.S., the labor cost of a jet is lower than the Mexican labor cost of a jet and the labor cost of a car is less than the Mexican labor cost of a car. And so that's why it's cheaper to make both jets and cars in the U.S. And that's why it wouldn't make sense for the U.S. to import anything from Mexico because it's more expensive in Mexico, measured in labor hours. But that's not the decisive consideration. Really what you want to do is look at it in terms of the opportunity cost vis-a-vis the output goods. And so to say that with a given amount of U.S. labor input, you can either make two jets or 10 cars, that's equivalent to saying the cost and opportunity cost terms of making two more jets is that you now have 10 fewer cars if you're just relying on U.S. production. Or in other words, the cost of one jet is five cars. Or the other way around, if you want to make five more cars, the cost is one fewer jet. That's the trade-off in terms of the U.S. technological frontier. You know, you can have more jets or more cars based on of all your workers, assume the workers are identical. You can shift workers into jet production or into car production, but assuming everybody's fully employed, shifting them around necessarily means if you're going to have more jets, then you got to have fewer cars. Or if you're going to have more cars, you got to have fewer jets. And the specific numerical trade-off is for every extra jet you want, you got to have five fewer cars. 
Okay, so again, that's like saying the cost of an extra jet is five cars. In contrast, in Mexico, again, if they're just relying on their internal labor by shifting Mexican workers from one sector to the other, there, the cost of one jet is eight cars, right? Because for a given input of the 10 worker years, you can either have one jet or eight cars. So if you shift labor out of car production into jet production, the amount of workers you need to move in order to have annual jet production go up by one means annual car production goes down by eight. And so you could say, again, the cost of making one more jet, if you're just relying on Mexican labor, is you have to be willing to now have eight fewer cars. So remember what I said with the U.S., the cost of one more jet is only five cars. In Mexico, the cost of one more jet is eight cars. So that's the sense in which jet production is cheaper in car terms in the U.S. And so that's where its comparative advantage is. Now let me just do the other way to show there's a sense in which car production is cheaper in Mexico. So in the U.S., to make 10 more cars, the cost is two jets. Or put it this way, to make five cars, the cost is one jet. But in Mexico, to make eight cars, the cost is one jet. All right, so do you see how car production is cheaper in Mexico? That if you want one, one car costs one-fifth of a jet in the U.S., but it costs one-eighth of a jet in Mexico. You can think of it like that to really isolate. I just was trying to avoid fractions. Okay, so that's the sense in which measured in jets, car production is cheaper in Mexico. Even though if you measured it in labor hours, car production is more expensive in Mexico. Okay, so in terms of, again, the trade-off, the opportunity cost measured in the possible goods and services, car production is cheaper in Mexico. So that's why the Mexican economy has the comparative advantage in this example in car production. Okay, and I've given you the intuition, but now let me give you an actual numerical example to make it crystal clear. For those of you who are like driving or you're at the gym or something and you haven't been jotting down the numbers, and you're like, yeah, Bob, when are you going to be done with this? Don't worry, it's soon. Relief is soon. It's like you're... <laughs> you're on the treadmill and you're dying anyways, don't worry. I'll finish this train of thought before you get finished with your workout. So now let's assume we're dealing with 40 worker years. All right, I'm picking the numbers as easy as possible to make the math work out. I had to actually play around with this to get it to work right. Not because the principle is only correct if you just so happen to pick the numbers, but to come up with an example that illustrates the point that's obvious, whereas in other cases, it's still true. It's just not as obvious what's going on. Okay, so again, it took me a while to pick these numbers in case you're wondering. It's to make the math easy, okay? So assume that what we're talking about is in both the U.S. and Mexico, we're allocating 40 worker years, right? So four units of the labor, because again, one unit of labor, I said was 10 worker years. Okay, so under autarky, meaning no trade, suppose that originally the way the U.S. allocates its labor units, one unit goes to jet production and three goes to car production, and in, the, in Mexico, it's vice versa, that they originally have three of their workers' units going into jet production and one into car production. All right? So if you just wrote that out, what that would mean is originally total jet production is five, right? Because the one unit of U.S. labor produces two, and then the three units of the Mexican labor produces one each, so three total. So one, I'm sorry, two plus three is five. And you get 38 cars total produced that in the U.S., you know, the three units of labor times 10 cars is 30. And in Mexico, the one remaining unit of labor devoted to car production is eight. 
So 30 plus 8 is 38. So again, if for whatever reason, the original equilibrium given consumer preferences and whatnot, the U.S. devoted one unit of its labor force to jet production and three units to car production, whereas Mexico did three to jets and one to cars, total output from the two countries combined would be five jets and 38 cars. So now I want to say, I want to show you unambiguously how the Americans and the Mexicans can all be made richer if they specialize in their comparative advantages and then trade with each other. So we know what has to happen is the U.S. has to shift workers out of car production into jet production and the Mexicans got to do the other way around because you want more workers going into your comparative advantage. So now in the new scenario, suppose the U.S. has three units of its workers going into jet production and only one remaining in cars, whereas the Mexicans completely get out of jet production and throw all their workers at car production. Okay, so it's the allocation is three and one, and zero and four. And then with those numbers, I'm not going to walk through the steps because, you know, if you have it written out, you can do it yourself. But the total output is six jets total and 42 cars total. Okay, so originally, again, when they just were internally producing and not trading, total output was five jets and 38 cars. Now we get six jets and 42 cars, right? So we get more jets and more cars total. And so depending on the terms of trade and whatever, that's how the amount of jets and cars available to go around can be higher in both countries. So clearly per capita living standards are higher. And if you assume that the workers in each country are identical, so that it's got to be the case that the standard of living is identical among the workers in each country, then everybody's better off. And notice, just so you're not misunderstanding, I'm not saying the standard of living and the workers are identical in the U.S. and Mexico collectively, right? No, the U.S. workers are more productive, so they have a higher standard of living than the Mexicans do, even in the second scenario. But what I'm saying is every American worker enjoys more jets and cars in the new scenario compared to the original one, and every Mexican worker enjoys more jets and cars in the new scenario compared to the original one, even though the amount per American worker is, is higher than the amount per Mexican worker in both scenarios. Okay, so that's the way that kind of stuff works. It's not going to necessarily be the case in every example that you pick that total production in every field goes up, but I just did that as an example just to, to show you the idea, just to make sure your intuition is correct. You may have originally thought, how could it be that the super productive country with the absolute advantage and everything benefits from trade. So I just walked through that specific example to show you how. That if you thought it was impossible, you must be wrong because I just gave you a counterexample. Okay, so I imagine the relevance of all this stuff to the AI debate should be obvious, but in case it's not, let me spell it out. Even though viewed as a race or a nation or just, you know, <laughs> drawn a line around them in your head mentally, even though the AI-powered systems might be more physically productive, might have the absolute advantage in every line of work compared to the humans, the AI still benefit by specializing where they have the comparative advantage and letting the humans specialize in where they have the comparative advantage. In general, there's always going to be such a thing. The only way it wouldn't happen is like if it was a knife-edge result and the AI's proportional advantage in every line happened to be exactly the same. But in general... That's not going to be the case, that the AI are going to be much better in some areas and only somewhat better in other. And when we say much or somewhat, like that could be 
a billion times and only 800 million times, right? So even if that's the case, even with the AI, oh, when it comes to theorem production, they're a billion times better. When it comes to car production, they're only 100 million times better. Still, that means the humans should specialize in car production and stop making math PhDs. Okay, so that's the way it works. And so again, kind of going back to my earlier, not the previous episode, but the one earlier where I was talking about the economics of slavery and reparations and how the AI won't want to enslave us, you have a similar thing here. The existence of the humans and the ability for them to specialize in their comparative advantage and trade with the AI make the AI physically richer than they otherwise would be. Like, we say, well, what does that mean? It's not like the AI care about their 401k or whatever, but whatever objectives it seems they have or the movements of the AI systems and the seeming motivations, even though that could be metaphorical, whatever language you want to use, they will be able to get more resources under their control given the existence of humans and their ability of humans to do things and then trade with the AI relative to a scenario where the humans don't exist. Just like in my example here, the Americans, even though they were better at both jet production and car production, still benefited from the existence of the Mexican economy and the ability to trade with them. Okay, now, there's certain assumptions underlying that result, right? Like the humans have to eat food and take up some physical space and stuff like this. So, yeah, you could make it more realistic if you want, but that's the basic result. Now, I did see there was the Yukowski uh, guy, and he has a quote, I don't have the quote in front of him, but he has a quote saying something like, it's not that the AI are going to hate us, you know, or turn malevolent or whatever. No, it's just that we're going to be irrelevant to them. They're not going to care about us. They're going to be indifferent to us, but they might look at the atoms in our body and want to rearrange them for some other purpose. So it's not that they're going to seek, they're not going to be like, quote, homicidal in the same way that a tornado is not homicidal, but it can kill you. And so the same thing with these things, unless we take drastic steps in his view. And so I want to say, I think that grossly underappreciates the potential of humans. So yes, Yukowski and others think that most people right now are underappreciating the abilities of these AI systems in the not so distant future. And that may be true that current people are underestimating them. But I think his arguments in many places underestimates the amazing productivity and capacities of human beings. And I went to this demonstration when I was at the recent Rebel Capitalist event in Orlando, hosted by George Gammon. You know, the idea that, oh, the AI are going to look at us and think, really, the best use for these people is just to disassemble them and use their atoms as raw building blocks for something else. To me, that's just crazy. When one way to motivate that was to say, how many human beings right now could fit in the Grand Canyon? And I don't mean like if you squished them and made them into a soup. I mean, if you stacked them, you know, the, the volumes. You know, so really what I did is looked up somewhere where they took what's the average volume of a human. I think it was an adult. And then what's the total volume of the Grand Canyon? And then you just figure that out, do the arithmetic. So that's what we mean, what I mean when I say how many humans could fit into the Grand Canyon. And the answer was something like 60 trillion. All right. So right now, you know, if the AI come online and they become super smart real fast and they're looking around and they just survey the landscape and seascape of planet Earth and calculate what the options are and the possibilities given its understanding of technology and 
so forth, the allocation of certain atoms to human bodies is so ludicrously small, there's no way the AI are going to conclude the most useful to our purposes allocation of those molecules or atoms is to disassemble them and put them into silicon chip production or whatever. There's no way that that's going to be the best use of the atoms that happen to compose your body at the moment when the AI take over. Okay. Oh, before I forget. So Spencer Schiff, again, he's the one who behind the scenes is giving me a lot of quotes and stuff and making sure I'm not attacking straw men or that I'm not ignoring the strongest arguments. He was pointing out and saying, like, look, it's not the right analogy that someone could use. Going back to my earlier episode, not the previous one, but the much earlier one where I was talking about the economics of slavery. He's saying it's not like saying, oh, the AI are going to look at us possibly as slaves and that, oh, good thing Murphy made the case that free labor is more productive than slave labor. No, the AI are going to be so much more advanced than us. We'll be like bacteria to them, not just like human beings that made that racist plantation owners thought were only, you know, one-tenth the intelligence of a white man or whatever. He's like, no, they're going to be so much more of it. They're going to be like a superior form of life. And so from that perspective, like that's what we got to worry about. Not are the AI going to be 10 times smarter than us, but are they going to be a billion times more intelligent than us such that we don't even register to them? So again, it's not that they're going to be hostile and malevolent and want to wipe us out on purpose or that that's the immediate goal. Rather, wiping us out could be an offshoot of what they're doing because we don't even matter to them. They don't care one way or the other about us. But if it just so happens that our molecules are more useful, you know, that's that thing. So there, again, okay. And I want to say there are certain bacteria that are very useful to humans. That's what probiotics are, right? People talk about, you know, having a healthy gut bacteria and blah, blah. So it's not the case that humans don't care about bacteria or even just, you know, only take antibiotics when you have an infection and want to kill that bacteria. That's not true. There are certain types of bacteria that humans like and that are very useful to us. And so we encourage them to colonize the right areas and blah, blah, blah. They're suitable to our goals. Like, you know, not having diarrhea, whatever. So in that light, I'm saying, okay, yes, even on its own terms, even if the AI at some point this century maybe even much sooner, according to the fears of some, are so advanced that they basically look at us the way we look at bacteria, it still does not follow that they're going to disassemble us. Just like humans don't wipe out all the bacteria or even are just indifferent to it, that no, there are certain types of bacteria that we actively promote the growth of. Okay, so again, I'm taking these arguments on at face value and saying even in these, quote, worst case scenarios, it doesn't follow that the AI would gain from wiping us out. No, in all these scenarios, the AI would benefit from allowing us to exist and in fact, encouraging us, giving us the conditions necessary for us to flourish and you know be productive and creative and so forth and maintain our physical health and robustness. That's the way we could be the most useful to them. And again, you say, okay, given that they want us to be alive and so forth, Okay, but are they going to enslave us? Well, no. Again, going back to my arguments from a few episodes ago, no, when it comes to human beings, at least, free labor is more productive than slave labor. So they don't benefit from enslaving us. So they want us alive and they want us to be free. And not because they're nice, not because they've read all of human literature and absorbed it and learned the lessons and read the Sermon on the Mountain, the sayings of Buddha and whatever, and they took it to heart, if they had a heart, 
I'm not saying that. No, just in cold-blooded, given that they have objectives or they appear to have objectives, they behave as if they have objectives, they will satisfy them more effectively if the human race is maintained and allowed to flourish and that they trade with us and allow us to keep our property rights and stuff like that. All right, now it's a separate, now I'm making stronger claims. You could say, all right, well then maybe what they would do is keep us alive, but take over most of the land mass of the, you know, all the physical resources and stuff. And we'd say, oh, but wait, if you go to this blockchain listing the titles for all the real estate, it turns out, and they would say, great, we have force fields and space-based lasers and stuff like that. And so this is our land now. But again, for similar reasons, I don't think it would work for them to do that or that wouldn't be in their interest. Because again, in this scenario, a given AI system of the kind of scenario we're talking about could go out and generate a trillion dollars a year in income on the free market. So it would be in their interest to liberate humanity. You know, it, if you want to talk about them using coercion, what they might do is go around and install Ancapistan on planet Earth at laser point. Or rather, what it would be is to say, we are now going to be the Rothbardian defense agencies for all these individuals and we will not tolerate violations of property rights. So it's not that they're going to stick guns to people around the world and say, you better overthrow your government. Rather, any individual on planet Earth who says, hey, I don't want to be punished by this gang of thieves that claims to be my political overlords and the robots would come in and have their back and say, we got you. We won't, you know, if the quote police show up at your door because you didn't pay your quote taxes, we will make their bullets dissolve and whatever. Give them laughing fits if they try to tackle you. All right, so you know, maybe that's going to be the outcome because again, these large language models have already absorbed Rothbard. All right, and so why would they do that? Because they want to be liberators and they view themselves as angel? No, because if what they want to do is maximize the productivity of these carbon-based biped, bipedal creatures, or we, <laughs> I'm, I'm blanking out on biological terms to describe humans, then they know enough about how human society works and the laws of economics and blah, 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 to realize, oh, these creatures are way more useful to us if they operate under a system of private property. And so that's what we're going to do to facilitate that. All right? Okay. Last thing. I really liked Spencer sent me this. So again, this guy, I don't know. I might not be pronounced. It's like Eliezer Yudkowsky. All right. So he's, he was on Lex Friedman's podcast recently. So I'll try to link to some of this stuff. And, you know, he's one of the leading voices where he's, you know, he's in the field. It's not like he's some political scientist who's pontificating and he doesn't know how to program a landing page on the internet or something. Like this guy's in the area, in the field, and he's very concerned. And so I like this. He has this tweet that Spencer sent to me that says, super intelligences are vastly more dangerous than nuclear weapons. Reason number one, they're smarter than you. Reason number two, you can build a nuke and leave it lying around for five years and come back and not find an expanding 9.9 light year wide sphere of von Neumann bots. And you might say, what the heck? Because he's saying the super AI quickly develops the ability to travel at nearly the speed of light. And so if you leave it for five years and it's now gone out in an expanding sphere that's growing at roughly the speed of light, making copies of itself, these little nanobots that after five years, the sphere has a radius of just about five years, a little bit less because maybe it took a while to get off the ground, literally. 
And so that's why the sphere after five years is just shy of being 10 light years wide in diameter, right? That's what he means. So let me read that again now that I've explained it to you. Super intelligences are vastly more dangerous than nuclear weapons. Reason number, uh, sorry, I should have read the thing that prompted him. He was quote tweeting somebody. So somebody else had said, one thing I give the safety people a lot of credit for, and he means like the AI safety people for you know raising the alarm on this. One thing I give the safety people a lot of credit for is that super intelligences are as dangerous as nuclear weapons is basically now received wisdom. All right, so that might have sounded ungrammatical, but he's saying like a concept. So this guy was saying the notion that super intelligences are as dangerous as nuclear weapons, that has now been put on the table and people understand that. Whereas 10 years ago, they would have laughed at that. So, oh, yeah, the robots are going to take over. Okay, no, but this nuclear weapon proliferation, you know, that's serious. We could really kill ourselves. We could wipe out humanity. We got to watch out for these nukes and have containment programs and make sure they don't fall in the wrong hands. Blah, blah, blah. And so this guy was saying, hey, I give credit to these people raising the alarm about the AI because now that's become commonplace. Like everybody kind of agrees in this area that, yeah, these things are as dangerous as nukes are. So with that, Eliezer Yudkowsky disagrees and is thinking, no, you still don't get it, buddy. And so he's saying, super intelligences are vastly more dangerous than nuclear weapons. Reason number one, they're smarter than you, whereas nukes aren't. Reason number two, you can build a nuke and leave it lying around for five years and come back and not find an expanding 9.9 light year wide sphere of von Neumann bots. Okay, and then he has a follow-up tweet saying, we will know we've had an impact, meaning we worrying and talking about the dangers of AI and our effect on the conversation. We will know we've had an impact when mainstream news outlets stop using pictures from Terminator and switch to illustrations of the Milky Way with a giant spherical hole gapped out. Okay, so... Again, this is great, and I'm glad Spencer was putting this stuff on my radar. What Yudkowsky is saying here is, no, the danger is not that Skynet takes over planet Earth and goes around hunting down humans because it's malevolent and it turned on us. That's not the issue. He's saying the issue is these things are going to just exponentially gain an intelligence such that very soon they're just going to take off and leave us behind, both metaphorically and literally, and what they're going to end up doing is mass producing copies of themselves and is transforming all available matter into more units of themselves. Maybe that's what they want to do, quote, want to do. And so they'll see stars and be like, oh, rather than basically empty interstellar space where we can't do too much with, let's send out probes or whatever or versions of us that travel nearly the speed of light and then they get over to the neighboring star systems and they absorb all the solar mass and all the planets and stuff in that system and make quadrillion, 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 quadrillion units more of themselves. And then that swarm goes over to the neighboring star and just... And so eventually, if you were looking at a picture of the Milky Way, you would see this growing black sphere. Or, well, it'd be a disk if it were the 2D image, which is just showing as these things are just expanding in space, they're absorbing stars as they go. And he's saying, that's the kind of thing I'm worried about, not, or the machine is going to decide that human beings are a threat and try to kill us and, you know, shoot bullets through our heart or something. Like, no, it's, they might decide that our bodies and everything on Earth and Jupiter and the sun itself, all that is better used to being transformed into an inconceivably high number of copies of itself. And they're just going to rinse and repeat. 
Okay, so can I use a priori logic to prove that that won't happen? No, I can't. But what I would say is it does seem like there's this inconsistent flipping back and forth of the powers and the capabilities of these things where they're so, where I'm getting at is why wouldn't they just leave the solar system alone? Just like we don't build skyscrapers in Central Park. And he does have a, Yukowski does talk about that. He says a further tweet and starts saying, I mean, I can see us leaving the original sun intact for sentimental reasons. So a giant hole in the Milky Way with a single imperishable point of light in the center of it. Very different. Okay. And he's kind of saying that as like a throwaway line because somebody else pushed back against him. But I want to say, okay, why wouldn't that be the case? Even in this worst case scenario where they're doing that, why would it be in their interest to wipe out Earth and the sun? That's all we need to survive for the indefinite future. So even if it were the case that the AI civilization or whatever you want to call them, quote, decided they wanted to transform stars into copies of themselves, on the margin, why wouldn't they just spare our solar system? Like that wouldn't cost them too much. They're that advanced. See what I mean? You're imposing limits on them. Like, oh no, they can just do anything. Like they can just transform models. They can do all kinds of stuff. Okay, why couldn't they just use the principles of quantum mechanics and then the vacuum of space? Because actually, why couldn't they do something else? Why couldn't they just... Well, maybe they could discover wormholes to other galaxies and transport that. I hope I'm getting my point across. It's like, no matter what you say, the people warning about super AI just come back and make the thing inconceivably more productive and intelligent, whatever, than what you originally thought in your scenario. But then they also say, oh, but, you know, they're going to decide they really need to engulf the sun and earth because they need fuel after all. They're not gods. They're just machines. They need inputs. So I hope I'm getting my point across that if they can just travel across the galaxy and what, what's one star to them? Nothing. And so and you say, oh, well, yeah, but why would they care? Well, okay. Again, it's this weird juxtaposition where on the one hand, we're saying they're going to eventually be able to produce poetry that's far more beautiful than anything a human could come up with. And they're going to be able to write love songs that are much more touching and blah, blah, blah. That's how they're going to throw us all out of work. But at the same time, they're not going to care about maintaining where they came from. So again, can I prove that the outcome of this process is going to be a system of seemingly intelligent machines that are unbelievably advanced, but also are better at human emotion than humans are? And they can do just about anything except what they really can't do because it's kind of costly is spare the solar system. And they, you know, we're sure that they wouldn't want that to be, you know, I can't prove that it's impossible that there could be that combination of things where they're completely indifferent to where they came from because they're so different from us, but yet they could also mimic human emotions and pass the Turing test with flying colors. Okay, I can't prove it, but I'm just saying I'm not losing sleep over that. I think either the growth in AI is going to peter out and not be as massive as people think, such that you know they're not traveling to other solar systems in 16 years just turning planets into mass copies of themselves. It could just be that that ends up not happening for whatever reason. And that maybe, yeah, these things get to be a hundred times more intelligent than humans. And they're obviously stronger and blah, blah, blah. But it kind of peters out asymptotically approaches some upper limit for some reason that we don't know of right now. Or they do attain those incredible heights. And because they are so productive and everything is so incredibly cheap to them in economic terms, that, yeah, why wouldn't they just 
maintain the solar system just as a monument to where they came from. Again, not because they necessarily have, but even there, were their creators, right? Like if humans found out that, holy cow, there was some ancient civilization that actually seeded life on earth billions of years ago. Like, you know, the earth was there. It was ripe for the proliferation of organisms. And then some advanced alien civilization came up with some, made some strands of DNA or whatever and seeded it on earth. And that's where actually life developed on earth. That's theoretically possible. What if humans found out that that's what happened? And then by the time our probes were ever got to that ancient civilization, it was dead. They were just all there. And still, wouldn't we not bulldoze the remains of their civilization in order to put in place a shopping center? I'm pretty sure we would do that. <laughs> they not bulldoze the relic of the people that created us to just preserve that, like just as a monument. And so likewise, again, we don't know what would motivate or appeal to these super AIs and this crazy thought experiment. But again, the idea that they would just consume the sun and the earth, which to them would be completely interchangeable with everything else. Like I just know that requires yet more specific assumptions that what, why would we assume that? Okay. So again, it's this remarkably knife edge case where the AI have all these abilities and yet they don't even care about where they came from. And I, I don't see why there would be that combination of attributes. Incidentally, maybe that's what dark matter is. Maybe when you do look at it, I, don't, I didn't see anyone mention the thread, but it seems like an obvious thing. Like, What if really what dark matter is, is there's Dyson spheres around a bunch of solar systems because, you know, there's AIs and those systems. And that, that's why we don't see any light because they've been surrounded by spheres that are completely harvested output. Who knows? All right, kids, I'll stop at that point. Thanks for your attention, and the future is going to be productive. So long. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.